really look forward to perhaps hopefully only one more week of meeting this way online and then things are going to change for us and uh, really look forward to uh, getting together corporately again, which is going to be amazing. Um, not too long ago, a uh, week or two ago, um, Knox, where I uh, did my seminary work, they wanted to have a follow-up call with me, see how ministry was going, how was the church plant going, talk about Redeemer. They asked me a bunch of questions like, um, uh, you know, you know about how the church was uh, founded and what the vision was. And so as I was reflecting on the four values or the four, four pillars that our church stands on, and I kind of communicated this to our friends at Knox, uh, totally unoriginal. We're not trying to do anything new and spectacular. We want to be faithful to what the church has been doing for 2,000 years. And so, um, you know, the name of our church is Redeemer. Uh, the name of our the name of our Redeemer, the logo of the church is a cross, the symbol of our Christian faith. The four values are, are firstly the declaration of gospel, which we do every Sunday, and gospel specifically being, for, for those of you who may be new joining us, Gospel doesn't mean absolutely everything in the Bible being gospel. Gospel is a specific message. And it is the, uh, that the God, the creator of all things, has desires to restore all things because uh, the sin of humanity has caused uh, the, the, the breakdown of this beautiful world of ours. So our world is beautiful and yet broken. And so the message of the gospel is that God comes in Jesus Christ. He pays the price for our sin Sin being defined as rejecting God in favor of being God. It is the undercurrent underneath every form of injustice, oppression, brokenness in our world. And God desires to redeem that. So he comes in Jesus Christ and he lives the perfect life we could never live. And he dies the atoning death that uh, we deserve eternal death. But by placing our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and in his resurrection on that third day, um, then death is not the end of us any more than it was the end of Jesus, but rather that as Christ uh, ascended, he will return and he will restore all things. So in the Christian view, um, this is the gospel. And so we as a church are committed to preaching that gospel, thinking about the implications of the gospel, and then of course living in light of it, which leads into the other three values, love, compassion, and city engagement. We want to be a community of love where we um, love each other when we show each other our ugly sides, that the church is a family. And like every family, every family has some level of dysfunction in it, some form of dysfunction in it. And our church, like every church, is full of people who at some point are not going to be very loving. And so we want to be a community of love. Um, and that means that we're willing to live for each other's benefit, even at our own expense. That's what we see in the cross. That's what we see in Jesus. Compassion looking like caring for the poor, caring for needs. When we hear about needs in our own uh, church community, that matters to us. And so we care for uh, those who are needy among us, and we care and have compassion on the poor and the refugee in our city of Kitchener-Waterloo. And so we're actively involved in, in their support and in their care. And the last thing is city engagement. And the funny thing about talking about city engagement is that here we've been online for quite some time, except for when we could meet at Woodland and thank God for that facility. But once we get to gather together again for the summer, we're gonna be in a tent outside the city. So really not close to what we sort of envisioned when we planted the church uh, six years ago. But I guess I'll channel Jonathan Edwards and we'll just have some tent meetings for the summer before we can get back into the city. But the, vi the vision of city engagement is what Susan was saying to the kids this morning. It's the ordinary, everyday commitment of 
of uh, our lives looking like worship in our vocation, uh, in the bringing the goodness of, of God's love and grace to our various uh, vocations. That That's flowing from the gospel, all of the justice and mercy that we desire to do uh, in the city, whether that looks like um, having conversations uh, that are, are helpful in, in creating cultures at work of giving dignity and love and respect to people of different ethnicities or different walks of life, that we as the church are these kinds of people in our city. It's city engagement. The, the volunteer boards that you sit on, the volunteering that you do in the city. If your kids are involved in sports, the, 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 regardless of what it is that we do, this is what we uh, desire to be as a church. That's what it means to be missional. And so in a corporate sense, we've been able to corporately be involved in lots of things. Peter mentioned during the offering we're going to give to the KW Pregnancy Center to support uh, women that find themselves in uh, situations where they have no support around them. Uh, you know, we've given to the One Roof um, Youth Facility and got them that defibrillator because, uh, you know, it's difficult to understand. There's a lot of young people who are overdosing in our city because a lot of us are blind to that kind of uh, need. We don't see that every day, but it's it's a real concern here in our city. And so we support things like that or St. John's Kitchener, Kitchener, the refugee house. These are all things we desire to do corporately as a church. And They've been severely limited, of course, this, uh, this last year as we've been muscling through this pandemic. Corporately limited, uh, individually limited, but perhaps not so much as you've been able to care and love for your, your neighbors and go for walks and reach out to people at work and even in this Redeemer community, individually uh, limited. But thank God the Spirit is unlimited and has been unlimited and continues to do His saving work, not only in our little congregation, Redeemer, but globally. And so our text for this morning uh, comes from Matthew chapter 5. And this is a provocative text where Jesus is calling his followers. He's calling us beyond this collective corporate witness. And he's provoking us to think about our personal lives, you and I personally bearing witness. Before uh, the pandemic began and we started to try and do some corporate things, faith and reason events for university students, the Faith and Works event downtown, um, the 223, our youth program we were trying to get off the ground, all sorts of sort of corporate sort of things. Uh, it seems like a thousand years ago, but do you guys remember right before uh, the pandemic began, many of you are a part of making a thousand sandwiches that we were uh, each week delivering those sandwiches to St. Mark's homeless shelter. I mean, these are all corporate things. This text, though, takes us out of sitting back and thinking about what the corporate church is up to, and it provokes us to think about what we are personally up to in terms of our personal witness. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 13, I'm going to read to verse 20. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota or a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. 
Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is God's word. Now, as I said last week, the Sermon on the Mount, it is given to uh, Jesus' followers. They're the ones that followed him up the mountain. The disciples sat down. And so this is not a, you know, the Beatitudes where we began last week. It's not the, the entry requirements for, for uh, into God's kingdom. It's actually a reflection of what it looks like for those who follow Jesus, who are children of God in God's kingdom. And the Sermon on the Mount continually and repeatedly shows us two ways to live. You know, and as you work through the whole chapters five through seven, you're going to find two ways to relate to giving and fasting and praying, two ways ways to relate to rewards, two ways to relate to money, two ways to relate to needs, relate to judging, relate to obeying good works. There's going to be two trees, two kinds of fruit. And then a sermon ends with two ways to build your life. On the rock or on the sand, on Christ alone or on some other mini Messiah. And it ends in two outcomes on Judgment Day, uh, salvation and damnation. It's just Jesus is consistently showing us two ways in which his followers can live and relate to all these things. And, and this, these verses we just read invite us to consider two kinds of faith, two ways to relate to our Christianity. Faith that's alive, faith that's dead. Faith that's like a light, faith that's totally hidden. Faith that's tastely, <laughs> tasty, faith that's tasteless, you know, and useless. Um, and so we, we get this, uh, this provocative image here that Jesus gives us. And he's provoking us to see that faith that is alive, um, it looks like having loving influence, loving and caring influence motivated Uh, by his empowering grace. And that life of loving influence that's motivated by grace, it's actually bearing witness to saving grace. So there's what the gospel is and what the gospel does. There's who Jesus Christ is and who we live in light of who he is. And this text is bringing these things together a little bit. And so we want to look this morning at how Jesus describes this calling, uh, how it plays out in our lives. And we can consider where we can live this out and also, thankfully, the power uh, to live it out. So I'm going to look at three things uh, that I'll pull from this text. The first thing is how we're called to be agents of preservation. Secondly, sharing the gospel with intention. And then finally, um, the life of ongoing transformation. So firstly, agents of preservation. He, he talks about salt and light. Let's look at salt. Uh, salt was a valued commodity uh, in the ancient world. And in fact, there are times where Roman soldiers were paid by, with salt. And uh, that gave rise to the, to the phrase that you're familiar with called, oh, that person's worth their salt. You know, that phrase came from the idea that it was so valued in the ancient world, some people were actually paid with salt. And so he says, you know, if salt loses its, its saltiness, and he's relating this to um, who we are to be as Christians, he says it's useless, and um, it says if it, the text says if it, if it loses its taste in verse thirteen, and uh, in the Greek the word for taste um, it it doesn't it, it can mean taste as in what we're putting in our mouth, but uh, the word is maraino, and maraino 
means to become dull or to lose its edge. And so it's used in various ways in the Greek language. And so Jesus puts it in here to be like, you know, if you lose your edge, if you become dull, um, essentially, if, if whether you are there or not, it makes no difference, then what good is that kind of faith? He's provoking us to see, am I the kind of Christian who, whether or not I'm present in the conversation, it makes no difference. Whether or not a conflict breaks out at work and uh, my presence there has really no effect one way or the other. Or uh, there's a relational conflict or tension with friends uh, or at school or in, in, in our family. Um, if the way that we kind of relate to things around us as they start to decay, because this of course is the purpose of salt in the ancient world and today, is it's not just seasoning to make something taste good, but particularly, especially in the ancient world when they didn't have fridges and refrigerators, salt was all about preservation. So we need to see that we're called to be these agents of preservation. You know, is my presence in this conversation or this relationship or at work or like, is my presence in the city, not just corp this corporate thing called Redeemer, and is Redeemer missional or not? And is Redeemer got programs for this or not? But you, individually as a person, is like, is my presence a preserving sort of a presence? Do relationships and people, do my neighbors whose physical houses are on either side of where I live, is there any, am I having any sort of preserving impact in my immediate context? Um, this is what Jesus is provoking. It's pretty provocative. He's saying, or could you not be there and it essentially, you know, make no make absolutely no difference at all. And, uh, and so we're called to be these agents of uh, preservation, but how, how is it that we do that? And before you, you, you could probably take some time this afternoon and this week to really think practically through your own personal life in terms of how could this look? Um, and I obviously can't give you 150 different ways right now, uh, but I'm going to speak broadly. Uh, the only way for you to have a preserving effect is for you to go in and not stay out. That's what salt does. It goes in. So the first thing I think that as followers of Christ are being provoked to consider is when something starts to decay, a conversation, a relationship, a moment, the culture at work, something going on at school, like something at school, something starts decaying descending into an unloving, unhelpful scenario. What is my response when I see that decay? Is it, I don't need any more drama in my life. I'm going to just say, oh, thank you very much. I've built the fortress of solitude and I just enjoy my life of comfort. In fact, the goal of my life is comfort. This decay is going to create discomfort. So I'm just going to sit back. So immediately what we see is the only way for salt to preserve anything is to go in. Are we willing to be the kind of people who go in to be voices of love and of care? And before we get to the gospel, pointing to that Jesus guy, which we are going to get to, because that's, that's where this moves into the light. But firstly, let's just keep this conversation around salt. I think that's provocative for us to consider. Am, am I so consumed with my own life, my own time, my own schedule, my own agenda, my own resources, um, that I'm just really not willing to go in. Well, you can't be salt then because salt goes in. And so this immediately, if, if as I was getting ready for the sermon this week, um, 
I swallowed hard many times because I'm like, oh my goodness, there's so many situations where I don't want to like go in. It's just so easier to just be like, I'm just going to stay out of this uh, situation or this conversation. And, uh, but there is power for this and I'm going to get to that a little bit later. Of course, that's where this good news, uh, this good news heads that we're of course not to do this on our own strength. And as I'm saying this, some of you may be thinking, well, what about boundaries? What about my mental health and all these sorts of things? And of course, you know, Jesus is a loving savior. So he's not asking us to go, go in and destroy ourselves. So we get the wisdom of not, of not going in alone, <laughs> right? Matthew 18, if you, have a, if you have a relationship or situation that's decaying and it becomes really toxic and really unhelpful and you feel like you're weighing over your head, well, you don't go in alone. Matthew 18 is that you go, you take somebody with you, you make appeals. And the, the point is not that uh, the salt is the savior of the world. We're not the saviors of the world, but there is a willingness to go in. And so uh, what we don't want to do is take things and say, well, I got to have boundaries in my life. I have to protect my own mental health. Actually, you know, I, I struggle with worry or anxiety or whatever. So I just need to stay totally uninvolved from all of these things. Um, and we don't want to, we don't want to uh, use those as excuses um, to just remain essentially, as Jesus would say it, dull, <laughs> tasteless, and really of, of no effect in terms of our, in terms of our faith. So on the one hand, super provocative. But on the other hand, when you think about this, this is actually extremely encouraging. Uh, it's, it's, it's provocative because of what I said. We go, we've got to have this preserving influence. And he says the only way to do that is to go in. But it's encouraging because Jesus is overtly saying you are the salt of the earth. This is not like, hey, try your hardest to become more salty. This is not a conversation about pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and trying to be trying to do something again i want you to see how this flows from the beatitudes this is a description so it is a it is an instruction it is a prescription you and i ought to live this way that's good but it's encouraging because he's like you are this so he is he is overtly saying that united to him there is something that goes on there is a undeniable change that is and will occur in all of his followers because he has the audacity, Jesus has the audacity to say, you are, you are salt. You are going to have preserving influence. You are going to be uh, attractive in the way in which you um, permeate situations and bring a preserving effect. This is a very positive thing, a very encouraging thing. So let's move on to the next thing, which is, uh, after being agents of preservation, as we think about salt, but sharing the gospel with intention, as we think about light. So in verse 14, Jesus calls you and I the light of the world, which is crazy because that's how he described himself in John chapter 8 and 9. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. And so what is he doing here? What is his purpose in looking at you and I, these clearly flawed, deeply flawed and sinful people and say, no, you know, you're the light of the world. What is his purpose? Is he trying to crush his followers under this radical burden, this impossible expectation? Or is he inviting his followers to look in the mirror in a new way, humbled and emboldened by a new realization that he is making us something new? That's why whenever Susan talks to the kids, she keeps on using the language very purposefully. Hey kids, this is a new humanity, 
right? The, the, new, text, the new Testament continually uses that, that phrase, the new humanity, the new man, right? Adam, his na- it wasn't like God didn't name him. At, it's not Adam's like Bob. Adam is the Hebrew word Adam. It means humanity. It means human. So Jesus comes to create new humanity. And so he has the audacity to say to us, who are clearly deeply flawed, hey, I'm the light of the world and you're the light of the world. Well, he obviously doesn't mean in and of ourselves we are. He obviously means united to him. Something very, very deep is happening. Um, on the one hand, again, this is super provocative, um, but it's also encouraging. It's provocative because he says that we put our, our light on a stand. So that's pretty intentional. Where do you have lamp stands in your house? You think about it. You're like, hey, we need light over here. You put the stand there. It's all about intention and, uh, and being very purposeful. So it's provocative because he's saying, as believers, not just this corporate thing called Redeemer, right? Where, hey, what sort of programs do we have for Kitchener-Waterloo? Hey, I'm interested in, in becoming a member of your church. What's the church doing to be, be missional? What are you doing to be missional? Because if you and I are all missional, then we, by extension as a church, are missional because we are permeating this city as salt and light, bringing preserving effect, love and wisdom and care in practical ways, and pointing to Christ and, uh, and the hope that is found in him. So it's provocative. He's asking us to put our faith on a stand, and we can think about our lives, or we can do that in um, wise and caring ways. And it's also encouraging because, of course, he's used this title for himself. So he's clearly drawing a line to get us to think about the implications of union with him. This is all about union with him and with Christ. So we have received uh, the saving grace of Christ, called to be intentional about sharing it. So we are light receivers and we are light givers. And so when you think about this stand and what that looks like, we think about the we think about Jesus and the life that he led and we see that he was very attractive to the culture. And he said things that were very, very offensive to the culture, but it wasn't because he was brass and crass and obnoxious and the kind of guy that nobody wanted to have at their party. Jesus was the kind of guy that everybody was inviting to their parties. And yet he would, he would say things in a way that were completely countercultural. And you and I may need to do that as well. But his way of love and care, so it's like for us to be the salt and light, it's to be wise as serpents, harmless as doves, not the other way around. Where we're as obnoxious and venomous as serpents and as wise as doves in the way in which we relate um, to our culture around us. There is an attractiveness to light. Light, of course, is, is, uh, uh, has this guiding effect. And... Uh, so we see that the salt is this perverse, uh, preserving influence, this life of love. But then this light, this is a specific message. This is shining on a specific thing, on a specific person. This is beyond just living the loving life. It's beyond just saying, let's do great work in the city. And that's the gospel. It's beyond that. It's pointing to the Christ of the gospel. It's you and I having the boldness to get beyond conversations around ethics and getting to that Jesus guy. It's beyond just, hey, I'm loving and caring in the city. I'm, you know, I'm going to do friendship evangelism where I just make friends for 45 years and maybe one day there'll be a chance. No, it's, it's, <laughs> this is provocative. It's salt and light. And of course, the light that we're shining is reflecting and pointing to him. It's this call to 
you know, the purpose of the lamp is to light everything else, not point to itself. And as Jesus is saying this, by the way, not far from where he's standing on this hill, historians uh, tell us, um, there's this city called Safet, this, this ancient uh, city on a mountain. And you can see it on the mountain. And so you can just imagine Jesus saying, you're like, you're salt and light. You're like a city on a hill. And he's pointing. Do you see that city? But all of us at nighttime, we can see where the lights are lit. And I mean, you just can't stop looking at it. He's giving this powerful metaphor for you and I. And I want to encourage you, my friends. The powerful metaphor is not church. We've got to live a Pinterest perfect life. I mean, the world is watching. We got to be Pinterest perfect life. No, it's not about you and I having a Pinterest perfect life. This is about the beauty of God's work in your life. Because some of you are going to think, oh, well, you know, here are the following things I'm struggling with. Therefore, I can't be light. Here are the following ways in which I'm still struggling with sin or feel like I'm drowning in sin. Or here's the following ways in which I'm, uh, I got to get out of sharing, you know, shining a light free card. Uh, but it's not about the fact that our lives are so put together. The text says that they will see our good works glorify our Father in heaven. Good works does not always mean that uh, everything is put together in such a way that the world goes, wow, you seem to have your life put together. What if you are going through radical tragedy and yet you continue to cling to hope and faith? What if you are struggling with cancer in your body, disease in your body? What if the doctors say, we have no answers for this. There's never going to be an answer for this. And yet you are a person who has tremendous sense of peace and hope and joy in your life. That is a work that causes people to glorify our Father in heaven. We could go on and on and on about the ways in which the brokenness of our own lives, yet as we look to God and trust in God and desire to live to his glory, right? Yes, walking out our... uh, uh, you know, Christian obedience as it relates to um, love and care, right? The beauty of God's work in our life. The message of the church is not, look how good we are. Look how put together we are. Uh, if, the message of the, if the message of the church was, look how, look how put together we are, look how successful we are, uh, nobody would come to Jesus because there's, there's, there's people on your street who have, uh, in some way, you wouldn't take long for you to find somebody who's more patient than you are. Uh, for some of us, it wouldn't take us long to find someone who's more financially generous than we are. I mean, it wouldn't take long to find an atheist, an agnostic, a Muslim, or a Hindu who has some character quality that you could say, I could use a bit more of that in my life, right? It wouldn't take us long. The message of the church is not look how good we are, it's look how perfect Christ is, despite how bad I am. Look how perfect Christ is, despite this weakness that I'm in, this challenge that I'm in. His grace perfect in our weakness. His grace, perfect in our failure. His grace, perfect in your pain, perfect in your hope, right? His grace perfected through joy over the course of these, this year, you know, that we've been in this pandemic, giving a defense for the hope that we are enjoying as I've been like a broken record. I mean, my kids would argue I'm always a broken record, but I mean, this, this year, to be like, let's not get distracted on what the message is. Let's shine the light on the right place, right? Not on whether or not our personal freedoms are, 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 are being infringed upon or the degree of government overreach or masks and vaccines or no masks and no vaccines. I could care less in the sense that, not that those conversations aren't, don't have their place or are important, but as it relates to the message of the church, our message 
where we ought to be shining our light is in the hope of Christ that cuts through all of these things, right? That actually enables us to be salt, a preserving voice, right? Light and be able to point to the one who sustains us through all of these things with this sustaining uh, effect. And so I'm going to borrow from Spurgeon. He said, Jesus brought the light of deity into the poor lantern of our humanity. And then he set it upon the candlestick of his church so that the whole world might be lit up. And so the purpose of our shining is that being, you know, a purpose of us being that city on a hill, we don't want to reduce it to, you know, people being impressed with our good works. The text says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. And this is, this is the point of it. Glorify your father. Why in the world would an unbeliever give glory to the Father? Because that's the point. It's not good works for good works sake. Why would an unbeliever give glory to the Father? That unbeliever has to be moved by the Father. That unbeliever has to uh, be drawn to the goodness and see how the light shine on the goodness of the Father. The Son sent by the Father. This to glorify the Father, the unbeliever comes to trust in the Father. The whole purpose of everything that we're up to is that people would come and find the glorious rest that we found, enjoy uh, the hope that we have found, right? Uh, when Susan and I celebrated our 20th uh, five years ago in Greece, they had lights shining on the Acropolis. And we didn't stare into those lights until our retinas burnt out. We stared at the Acropolis because the purpose of light is to shine to the glory of something else. And this there is the point of our lives, to point to Jesus Christ. The Son pointed to the Father. And by the Spirit, we do the same thing. This is the very first time in the New Testament that God is called Father, by the way. The very first time God is referred to as Father, it's because the unbelievers are glorifying him. Why is it that they're doing this? Why would they give glory to the Father? Because we as his children are increasingly bearing his resemblance and we're speaking of Christ and we're speaking of his, of his goodness and of his gospel and what he has come to do. And so the Sermon on the Mount, it's not a template for the culture. It's not a template that we hold up the culture and go, hey culture, here's all the ways in which you're incongruent with my God. Uh, it's a template for followers. It's a template for us to say, how can I greater resemble and bear resemblance to my gracious God because I love my God. And so you consider that, you know, the future impact that Jesus is describing this small ragtag group of disciples is going to have. It must have seemed totally ridiculous at the time. Uh, You know, how are these humble Galileans going to salt the earth and light the world? They did. We will. Not by the strength of our own arm because that's ridiculous, but by his grace, united to him, in love with him. God has always done the extraordinary through the ordinary. Like Susan said this morning, this is the first Sunday of, uh, on the church calendar of what we call Ordinary Sunday until Advent. God has always done extraordinary through the ordinary. Final thing, and I'll close our sermon today, um, our time together with this. The final thing, so we're called to be people of preservation. We're called to... Uh, uh, share the gospel with intention. And uh, we do this through this ongoing transformation. And, the, and, the, and this passage closes by Jesus saying, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, um, you'll by no means uh, enter the kingdom. And imagine the first audience kind of swallowing hard because they're like, oh my goodness, if anybody's checking the boxes, it's those guys. Um, but here's the problem. 
the Pharisees didn't love God. They leveraged God. You and I as believers, we're not called to try and leverage God. The, the reason the Pharisees were checking the boxes and doing all the good works, leveraging. Why are you and I giving of our finances to the uh, various causes in the city? Why are you willing to give your time and, and volunteer? And we're, you know, we're going to be meeting in a tent in a couple of weeks and take down chairs. and do, Why are we doing any of that? Why are we caring for each other? Why do you go carve time out of your schedule to go for a walk because someone here in the Redeemer community could use some encouragement. Why are we doing any of this stuff? Not leverage. Love. Not payment. Pleasure. Jesus has done it all. He's fulfilled the law. He said, I didn't come to abolish it. I came to fulfill it. And he did fulfill it. He went to the cross and he died that atoning death and he rose on the third day. And because of that, we're united to him and that is the game changer. If you're exploring Christian faith this morning, God, this con- God is abstract. Jesus is very concrete. You look at Jesus and he perfectly interprets God. If you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. If you want to know how God feels about you, how God feels about the world, you look at the cross. He came, he comes, he enters into our brokenness and our suffering and he gives himself for us. And so it's from that freedom, of course, that we live this life. It's from that freedom that we do these things. The apostle Paul wrote on all the implications of Jesus fulfilling the law, he wrote about it in Romans 10, and he said, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to those who believe. And you and I believe, church. And because we believe, everything that we do, the time we give, the finances we give, the sacrifice of our schedule, we give it all away from freedom uh, and not for leverage because it's done. Jesus fulfilled everything that the law requires from us, and he did it for us so that we are now these beloved adopted children of God. And our righteousness before God is totally passive. So now, united to Christ and indwelled by the Spirit, we're called to this life of salt and light. It's a righteousness in the city that is very active. And so, Redeemer, you and I, really, we operate like a a city within the city. And so through his word and through God's Spirit in our times of prayer and confession and worship, meditation throughout the week, God is doing this work of ongoing transformation in us so that we can do the preserving work like salt, so he can do it through us, so that the illuminating and guiding and leading saving work like light, he can do it through us. So let our lights shine before others so they may see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. Let's pray.